Hey everybody, this is Keach Rainwater with the Designated Drummer Podcast, and this week I have a very special guest here. I'm at the Band Cave here, by the way, so if you hear a train go by, you'll know that's uh, that's where we're at. Mr. Rich Redmond. What's up, brother? It is so good to reconnect In France, Rich Redmond. Yeah. Right? Whatever you want to... <laughs> yeah, the Band Cave, man. You know, it's, I've driven past this building a million times. We were in an undisclosed location. You know, I told you a tracks. billion times not to exaggerate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you always wondered what it was, right? Yeah. Because um, it's like it used to be a battery store, and then it was a gym, like a, somebody's personal training gym or something like oh, that. Oh, I can see that. I can see a bunch of guys just grunting and doing squat yeah. thrusts. It was one of those places where you uh, you hire a personal trainer uh, one-on-one kind yeah. of thing, and you just have like these special sessions and not not a big open gym. Because it's not a very big place, but it's big enough to for us to rehearse in. And yeah, no, like I, I like those gyms where it's like it doesn't feel like – you know, it's shiny and new. There's no AC, and it's just like heavy metal blasting. Yeah. Guys, the just girls like, don't all have put their makeup on, and, oh, yeah. and all that. It's just kind of this is the sacred place to get sweaty and, and <laughs> exactly. get some muscle, right? Yeah. So you are um, the drummer for Jason Aldean. Have been for how long has it been now? It's been twenty three years. Twenty three years. Wow. Yeah. I got you beat. I'm almost thirty years. You're definitely. That's a big celebration yeah, coming in up. In '94, in '94. So in two years. Well, about two years. Congratulations. Yeah, years. I met a young Jason Aldean in 1999, and you know, for those five years, we showcased and played a million showcases with the hat, without the hat, with a fiddle, <laughs> without a fiddle. You know, trying to get the the right uh, combination. And um, and then we recorded that first record in 2004, and then took it to started taking the music to the people. And that's, that's amazing that you. Now this doesn't happen in hardly ever in any band where you know what I'm going to say where yeah the artist says no I got my band I want my band my right. musicians that I play with my guys in the studio doing this record nobody right. gets to do that yeah I think it started to change a little I mean it was I mean it started to change a little bit in the. Late 90s, early aughts, you know, mm-hmm. where there were some some bands were playing on things. And we were, you know, me and the guys in Aldine's band were in a band short-lived called Rushlow. You, of course, you know Tim Rushlow. Yeah. And we were on Lyric Street Records, and we got to work with Jeff Balding, and it was so fun. We And we played on our own record, which was really cool. A lot of that stuff, I'm still pretty proud of that drumming and the drum sounds we got. It was like an old fives kid. Oh, with over. Jeff Balding as the engineer, man. He, was he did a, the Lonely Grill record and yeah, a yeah. lot of those things with Dan You guys Huff. have had so many different producers over the years, which is kind of cool and exciting because yeah. you get to reinvent yourself every couple yeah, years. Yeah, Don Cook was the first one and right. you know, but back in those days, um we didn't get to play on the record very much. It was like Lonnie Wilson and those kind of guys, you know, the, the drummers that would they would bring in the session guys, you yeah. know. And then it wasn't until Dan Huff that we got to be more involved and you hear you start to hear me on there and yeah, yeah. Michael and all of us playing more more of a band record. Yeah. So Yeah, man, you can't you But can't, you guys got to do it right at the get-go. You can't get around that. That there's something with yeah. that there's a chemistry and a quality that comes from a bunch of individuals that know each other by sight and smell and you know what I mean yeah. you're riding around a 23 foot tube together over the years you know each other really well you finish each other's sentences you have that sort of chemistry that you can bring into the studio now I will say there's a lot of these you know A-list uh, you know session musicians in Nashville and they know each other really well because they're yeah. they're like uh, you know family guys and they all go boating and camping and they're almost like a whole band that's been traveling on the road in a way yeah. they know each other so well they know they know 16th, 17th, 18th and 19th Avenue really well for for the folks that don't know you know that's music row which makes nashville so you know exciting and approachable is is that you don't have the urban sprawl of new york or la you have four streets and a bunch of watering holes and nightclubs where everyone in the music industry is going to gather right so it's easier to meet people yeah you know and they all know things like 
the fiddle gets the verse and the steel is in the chorus or something like that. Yeah, yeah. The, well, for the longest time, it was the second <laughs> verse the piano gets to do the fiddle. Oh, that's right. The Remember second the- verse. <laughs> okay, let's give him one. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, totally. So yeah, those session guys, they they know their stuff and they're and they're you know, I had Paul Lime on one of my first uh podcasts. Great and, episode, yeah. Oh my God. He was just such a wealth of experience and knowledge and all that. I well, learned so much about him. I mean, God. If you're you know, if you're the guy that played on Ships and Battlestar Galactica and Star Dukes Wars, of Hazzard, and then you can go out and do live dates <laughs> with, uh, you know, uh, you know, an Elvis tribute. Yeah, I mean, you're, right. you know, you're doing something right. And then he was at the Grand Ole Opry, and you know, it's just that versatility. We have some of the greatest musicians in the world in Nashville that right. really understand how to play a song and elevate it to like a high art. Yeah, and and I would say, and I think you've learned this through being doing sessions. Is in, in Nashville, we kind of have our own language, don't we? Like in the studio, like uh, different from if you were to do a session. Oh, in your Batmans or, and your Restmans. Exactly, and your, oh, yeah. Man. And the chart that we, it's called the Nashville number system. And if you don't know that, then you're kind of in trouble. You know? Well, I learned the Nashville number system. I was like a really good reader because I played so much big band and classical music. Oh. So that when I got here, I learned on the on the session how to read the Nashville number chart. Uh, I think Jimmy Nichols pulled me aside. I was like, hey, kid, every time you see a number, it's four beats. If there's a slash underneath the, the two numbers, then the first number gets two beats and the second number gets a second beat. If you see a little, something that looks like a little accent, it means a push. So either on the and of two <laughs> or the and of four going, you know. And so it's like, And this oh, was right okay. before your session. There's like five minutes the track <laughs> like while you're like okay okay yeah i and got you're, it sure and you're, you're yeah. tapping everything out you're getting the bpms together you're trying to figure so, out your kick drum patterns like, okay wh- what was the diamond thing again can you just <laughs> oh yeah diamond oh i learned the diamonds playing no. live down on lower broadway because uh um i looked there was these two brothers i forget this the the sutton brothers okay and they were the first guys i played with for tips down on lower broadway and they're like wow. starts with diamonds mama tried and i'm like mama tried don't know that song what's a diamond they're like you know Bow. Hit and hold. No. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole note. Yeah, You're basically. Okay, gotcha. gotcha. So you learn these things trial and error. But now I tell everybody, you know, let's go get our our buddy Jim Riley's book. He wrote a book called The Nashville Number System. Yeah, so, right. So Jim gets mailbox money from me because during every drum clinic I do, every podcast I tell people go buy the book because that's why when they come to Nashville, right, they already have the language together. That's right. You know. When I first came to town, I had no idea. I mean, I'd seen them before because I'd seen sessions and stuff, and I see these numbers on the page totally just blew it off you know i just think ah, it's, i won't need to know that yeah I'll, I'll i'll know the song when we go in and play it but yeah. then all of a sudden the producer says okay let's um let's lose the turnaround chorus and let's do the double let's do a double bridge and then let's do uh, a a complete uh batman right here and we'll do a hidden hold and a diamond and i'm like going oh God, oh, hold on. slow down yeah i can't my, my pencil lead broke i can't you know, yeah, totally. So, but, it's very it's very efficient because you can relate to the other musicians, um, you know, and relate to the the harmonic structure. Yeah, right. Instead of saying, okay, well, how many bars is the bridge? Oh, four bars. Okay, so we're going to double it. That means it's eight bars. Right. But if you see that the numbers and you see the harmonic structure, you could just kind of follow along and speak the same language as the band, yeah. which is great. We didn't do that in Texas. You know, we didn't yeah. when we we're playing around Texas and nightclubs. I always just you know. You probably did the same thing. I would just have little phrase charts, you know, right. four bar intro, four eight bar, bar yeah. verse, four bar pre I used to use little lines. I would like, yeah. I would make a big line and then four small lines and another big line. And that was like, that was a whole, and then I would start another line anyway. Yeah, that was like the Larry London method. He would just do slashes. Yeah, yeah. that's what I did. I didn't know Larry London did that, but yeah, yeah. I did that. Like if someone was saying, hey, let's learn the song like really fast, I wouldn't do a number chart. But I think the number chart was just a way to give the whole entire band just enough information. Yes. 
that they need to know, but not really specifically saying anything, you know? Well, that's the other thing that's so beautiful about Nashville, and that's why you have to understand basically the last hundred years of popular music, because if you don't know about... Uh, you know Motown and the, and Chess Records and and New Wave and 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s country. Right. You're not going to be able to 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 approach crafting a song in the studio because they give us just information. Here's the harmonic structure. Right, yeah. There might be a demo. You're 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 getting uh, input from the producer, the artist, the songwriter, the entourage, the less of the other players on the floor. So you have to be able to almost like a psychologist, like take that all into consideration and execute something. Whereas if you're playing like big band jazz or if you're playing a movie score, it's all written out. Written no, out. for where mm-hmm. to open the Nothing hi-hat, up. where to play the crash. Yep. That's what gives us such creative freedom in Nashville. Right. It's so cool. That's probably why there are, like you said, so many of the best musicians in the world are here because there's just a, a turnaround and a, just a, a workflow here. Like yeah. a, a there's amount a, of work, a body a of work. system, and there's a yeah. methodology for us to get our songs. Now, on the flip side, I think maybe in, maybe in the 90s, we were just cranking out so much music, mm-hmm. and it was sounding a little homogenized because right. maybe our system is down too pat. It was like, I mean, I think my um, record for doing, a, doing three demo sessions in one day was 20. 20- one song so that was seven songs every three hours so that means really almost getting a first drum pass with like almost no fixes if you screw something up they're like okay let's punch you in on that one downbeat on the bridge then the guitar player is going to overdub their stuff and someone's going to play a solo and you throw on some maracas and some tambourine really quickly that's my record 21 songs in one day wow that's amazing and i think classically as drummers the we're I've always thought of this. We're the really the only musician in the room that's kind of expected to do it perfect yeah. one whole take all the way through. Yeah. You now you can I will say you can punch drums. You couldn't always because there's cymbals, swells going on and stuff yeah. that wouldn't match. But um, but now with Pro Tools you can. But but now back then you had to be the only guy in the room that couldn't say, Hey, can I get that third chorus? Yeah. Punch me in or yeah. whatever. You had it's to, the hot seat. It, yeah, re- it, it really, really is. It's yeah. the hottest seat. The most expectations make or break position That's in the true. band. And I, I think just because of the, the existence and overuse of technology, I don't want to sound like an old guy, get off my lawn. But I really <laughs> feel like it's important for a musician to be able to play a track all the way down mistake free. Right. And and there's a lot of music that is just not being made like that. It's like, let's get the intro. Let's get the verse. And then they Frankenstein everything together. And then they add samples. And then they fix everything and put it all flat on the grid. So that's why it's... And young kids wonder what's happened to music that they listened to in the 80s yeah. and 70s. Yeah. Like, what, what's, what's, what happened Well, to there's this? a reason why Appetite for Destruction sounds so dangerous, and it stands the test right. of time, is that that album took a year to make. Now, granted, they couldn't find the band. Everybody was all hungover and scattered around Los Angeles. When they could get them together, there was some magic that was happening, yeah. and they weren't relying too heavily on the technology. It was just the guys in the room, press play. Someone hit play, yeah. and we'll do the rest. Yeah. Right? Amazing. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll take our hungover asses in there and we'll yeah. just like lay something down, if it's, even if it's wrong. <laughs> so dangerous. <laughs> so dangerous, man. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I want to go back to when you were 
starting out, you're like, I guess you're in high school. I, I've assumed, I just assumed, it could yeah. be wrong, but you played drums in high school? Yeah, I mean, for me, it started in, uh, I'm a Connecticut kid, you know, so like I, you know, and then I was kind of cut my teeth in Texas. I moved to Texas when I was 11, but I started playing the drums in 76. My dad got me some sticks, six years old. Hey, I had the samesies. Yeah, right. I started in 76. 76, got the Joel year. Rothman book, you know, uh-huh. where they, yeah. and then I, my, my teacher was showing me, you know, marches. So when we finally moved to El Paso, Texas, and I joined the, the fifth grade band, you know, I already had good snare drum chops, good reading chops. So it was just like, all right, how do you get a sound on the timpani? And how do you get a nice sound on the bass drum? And these are the glockenspiel mallets. And how do you get a good sound on the crash cymbals? And all that stuff was really kind of, inf- it was very informative. I used that stuff, you know, say you do like a cymbal swell, like into like in the studio, choosing the right thickness of the cymbal, choosing the right um, mallets. They so taught you that? At their- you get all that stuff in the band, you wow. know, the band program. Because they never taught us anything like that when I was in band. I played trumpet in band, but they never okay. gave us like nuances like that. It was, a, it was very basic. It was like, here's the notes, you play them. And we only had to learn through experience ourselves yeah. how to make things actually sound good. You know? Well, this was this in Texas, Plano, Texas? Yeah, that you're Plano, in Texas. Yeah. Now, Plano, Texas, that's kind of like an adult, it's an adult playground. Because, you know, I really, you know, because I went to, I ended up going to Texas Tech University and then I went to UNT. I actually got my master's in percussion and music education. Wow. So I'm an overeducated rock drummer. But <laughs> every night, I see, so I played jazz. Playing in the country band. I would play jazz every day <laughs> up in Denton. And fusion, and then at night I would go into Dallas, into Addison, you know, Beltline right. Road, Remember Club that, yeah. Memphis, and there's Emerald City was happening. All those cool I bands. Emerald City. I yeah. was in a band with Milo Deering, you know. We would play like kind of like alt country music. Um, it, oh, the, Texas has a great music scene. It really did. That's where I grew up. Yeah. I can't believe I didn't run into you. Or Plano, Texas. Kind of the same age, I guess. Yeah, and, yeah. And we didn't run into each other and. Um, because I played that circuit forever, Crazy. you know, from uh, 82 is when I started all the way up till when I moved to Nashville in 94. Okay, uh, so I moved to Texas. Nashville in uh, March of 97. Okay. And I met Jim, well, Jim Riley knew each other from North Texas, but he was like, he had moved to Nashville at the same time as me. And we ran into each other at the 16th Avenue Cafe, which down on Division, now if you are, if you are a new Nashvillian, you're, it's the, we have a roundabout that no one really knows how to use, and there's a bunch of naked people <laughs> playing a tambourine. The naked people, yeah, right? right. But right on the corner there was 16th Avenue Nightclub, and they would have cool jams there. And we all kind of like me, that, yeah. Jim Riley, Pat McDonald, Lee Kelly. That was kind of like our graduating class yeah. coming to Nashville. So when you came to Nashville, did you have a gig, or, or were you just kind of like— some people Nothing. they just I had a little money saved, yeah. and I was just pull. I was just full of of uh, pee and vinegar. You Piss know? and vinegar. Yeah. I was just like, I'm here, Nashville. You've been waiting for me. Hear and my like, wrath. Yeah. Little did I know <laughs> that it was like you know it was all going to be about relation, like relationships and crashing those parties, and then and then just getting people to know you, like you, and trust you, yeah. which can take. They say it's five years average, which yeah. kind of makes sense. I mean, I got I moved to Nashville on a Tuesday, and I was working in a wedding band. On Saturday. Wow. Which is, which it wasn't my dream come true. Right. But now all these people in the early part of my career, like I still keep in touch with these people. Like, you know, it's, the music business is about repeat business, you know, yeah, right. Just cultivating relationships, lifelong relationships. Yeah. And so thank God that gentleman, Paul Ross, if you're listening, thank you. He had a band called the Cadillacs and it was just like supper music that became like party music that by the end of the night, everybody was like playing YMCA, you know, okay, yeah. wearing my tuxedo. But wow. Hey, that was great. And then my day jobs were waiting tables, parking cars, and substitute teaching. So I would substitute K through three, 
seven in the morning with my khakis wow. in front of the class. Little did the kids know that I just got out of playing a nightclub until three thirty in the morning. Wow. And then you're wearing your khakis and you're like <laughs> drinking coffee and like, Yeah, yeah. Well so so high school you played your ass off in high school. You went to college and then all that. And so was there a moment either in college or in high school or whenever that was that sort of epiphany moment that I was talking about earlier where it's just like dawns on you that like, yes, that's what I want. It is possible. Yeah. I want to do that for a living. We're at, well, we're MTV kids, you know? So, yeah. so, you know, when, when I say, uh, JJ Jackson, Alan Hunter, Nina Blackwood, and yeah. cute little Martha Quinn, uh-huh. we were glued to MTV. <laughs> right. And so the police had come out with a record called Synchronicity right. and Van Halen came out with a record called 1984. Right. And I said, that's what I'm doing. I want to do that. And I, I had a poster of Carmine Apathy on my wall, right. you know, and I was playing the the realistic I'm glad rock you said Apathy because so yeah. many people say a piece. Well, let me see. They don't know Apathy. So I think it's Carmine Apice and oh, Vinnie Apathy. Oh. They try to pronounce it differently to separate. There's because they're they're really uh, oh, Vinny, yeah, okay. good brothers, but there's still an element of competition because Vinny oh, is the okay. younger brother. Yeah. I think. I mean, I've heard. I him. had a drum teacher one time that said it was Apathy, and because I, I, everybody that I knew would say Carmine Apice, Vinny Apathy, Vinny, yeah, Vincent, Vinny Ap- Carmine. No, Carmine is the one. Carmine, because he had a poster of him on his drum where I took oh, lessons, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and he said Carmine Apathy, and and I, I thought it looked like a piece, yeah. and everybody that I ever talked to jamming or whatever what's like oh like carmine a piece it's like pa- it's like, it's it's like pacey pacey yeah, <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah potato potato but those are the big ones then the big ones were like Stuart uh Stuart copeland uh do you carmine, say neil pert Vinny. or neil peart i think it's neil pert because i heard him one time on a radio station where it was like q102 in dallas hi this is neil peart from and there, i was like well, there oh, you it's go peart oh well if he if it came right. from the horse's it, mouth it, yes then there exactly you, go. you know you get mistake if i'm neil peart and because yeah, yeah. he's like a he was the professor know, like man. a professor man yeah man um but anyway so so you um there was that moment when that mtv so you would sit at home and watch mtv and there was concerts when, yeah you know what i mean right. so i have my big thick marching band sticks and and my 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 gladstone pad and i would just yeah, be like, chopping out yeah. to, you know chopping out and be watching concerts on mtv and I'm taking lessons and doing the whole thing trying to put it all together and of course i'll you know we moved to el paso texas which is not a gateway to success in the music business you know of course, but yeah. there was a there was a, a nice little music scene there and a bunch of great teachers that i had i had a uh, um, uh, there's, a, like, there's the train. There's the Jojo. train right on time. As soon as I start my Jojo, podcast, I don't It's a crazy train. Crazy train. <laughs> no, it's good. Okay. Keeps it real. Yeah, man. You know you're at the cave when you hear the train. That's my <laughs> horn section. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, you were saying. It was an exciting time. So. I mean, it really was. It was like, uh, and then I was, I really got into, um, you know, John Mellencamp. I mean, that Heartland Rock. And I was like, who's that drummer? Super high energy down. Yeah. And then, of that course. Kenny Ardoff guy. Yeah. And it took me back to, like, um, you know, my dad always loved the big band. So I was really into, like, you know, Krupa and Rich. And then I got into Max Roach. And then I started studying the big band drummers. And, you know, big band drummers were the original heavy metal drummers. I mean, right. it's really difficult to be sensitive and musical, but then also have the power to kick a 16-piece big band with blaring trumpets. Yeah. And it's... It, it's, a, it's That was the first time when drums kind of came out front a little bit, wasn't it? Yeah. Dun, dun, you, dun, dun, you know, dun, dun, the big band kind of yeah. like, put the drums up front where we can see them and hear them. And, and that's the leader of the band, by the way. You know, Buddy Rich or yeah. Gene Krupa or My something My grandparents like used to dance at the Savoy Ballroom in New York to check Webb and Gene Krupa and they would tell sing, me sing. stories. Yeah. <laughs> like, they would dance to that... That was the popular, that was the, um, who's like someone like super, like Dua Lipa. I mean, that was oh, the Dua wow. Lipa of the time. It wow. was like popular music. Yeah, Incredible. right. And then you'd buy their records and, you know, 
and that was back when they recorded stuff like direct to disc kind of thing they had these uh, disc like, recorders and yeah. you just had a couple microphones and you had to do it and from what i heard listening to um listening to uh rupert neve talk he said that back then if you were lucky enough to have two machines you'd have two machines going cutting the vinyl cutting like literally cutting the disc while you're recording so in case one had a blemish on it you'd have a backup you know? yeah that's how and, important it was and everybody in the band had to balance eat them their own instrument yes Within their section, and then across the band. I mean, it's like it's like the Phil Spector thing. Not a lot of microphones. Those guys had to learn how to balance their yeah. instruments. And they would put, uh, he would put, um, Phil Spector would put the drum kit up on chains on a riser above so that you could hear underneath it. And the whole, he said, the drum kit sounds better if it's surrounding you, you know, kind of what thing. What an exciting that time wild. in the music industry. Boom. Yeah. Boom, boom. Bah, boom. boom. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right, Hal Blaine. Oh, God, God rest his soul. And that, that lick I heard was a mistake. Like he, Did you ever hear that story? No. That he was going to go boom, chop, boom, boom, chop. He missed but it. But he missed it. He missed it. He went doom, 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 bop, doom. And they went, what, what is that? That, that little it, missing beat there. Well, there's immediately somewhere yeah. to build on that. Yes, and like, right. have we Did we take that in country music? You bet. Because like, boom, boom, boom. Cross stick. Yeah, right. Boom. Then it builds and then, from then there, two right? and four on the cross yeah, stick, right. and then alternating the cross stick and the snare, and then by the time you go to the full snare in the middle, it's like maybe it's the third chorus. Right. And yeah, so it's a way true. for us yeah. to pace ourselves. You know. I love that. Build a song. That's uh, what I love about building it. And I've done things where I will play uh, if someone you know I'm just writing a song like as a drummer. I'm not really uh, real versed on the guitar and the piano. So I'll what I'll offer is like a song. I'll just. Uh, uh, record what I think is an intro, and then I'll play the verse kind of down, and I'll do like you said, half snare, half and stick. And then sing like a melody. And then it's oh, pretty yeah. obvious where the chorus is, a yeah. big build into it, and I'll send it to them, and they'll make a song out of it. You know, oh, it's there really you go. great. Yeah. Oh, would you get writing credit on that? Uh, yeah, right. There you go. Like, because I would, I would come up with the idea of the song, like yeah. the what's it about? Like it's about a guy who's in love with this girl, but she's already dating the football player or something. You know, I come up with like an idea. I love that. And then, or even a title and the beat, and yeah. the, and then send it to. Them. And I figure, like, I've got three quarters of the way of the work done, really. Sure. All I got to do is. Did you ever get into, like, like writing lyrics with Lone Star over the years? Like, a little bit, a little here and there. That's fun, yeah. right? To push yourself. Yeah. Because I tell the kids at clinics, I'm like, look, it, when you write the lyrics and you're slaving over rhyme screens. You know rhyme schemes and how to pace a story and how to tell a story in three and a half minutes. You sure as heck aren't going to blow chops on top of that verse because right. you want to hear your story. I never thought told. of it that way. You know what I mean? Stay writer. out yeah. of the way, buddy. Yeah, and yeah. I talked to Paul Lime a lot about uh, serving the song and, sure. and what makes him such a great studio player. What makes any drummer a great studio drummer is like, what does the song need? Not not about your chops and about playing this cool lick or whatever. Uh, there's room for that at some point, maybe on the outro or something. But sure. serve the song, you know and Back in the day, we used to have fades. Remember those? And, yeah. and oh, fades. everybody would just get a little crazy on the fade. Right. You know, I would always listen really intently at the end of a fade and see if they're what's what's that? are they doing anything cool there? Maybe it'll come back the old yeah. fade. You know? Yeah. But we we just end songs now in the craziest yeah, we ways. We do. Yeah. That's true. Right on the one. An ending. Know? Yeah. yeah. Or, or ended on the four or some weird thing. You know, some weird. You know, yeah. keep you interested. So you um, you uh, went to college. When you got out of college, you probably started. Playing clubs and things. Yeah, probably, you know, I was playing all over Lubbock, Texas. I was playing all over D 
Dallas, Texas when I was in North Texas. And then I think what everybody does is as a rite of passage. So it was like, you know, uh, me and Rob of Sherian and, and uh, Luke Adams and Blair Sinton and Keith Carlock and Jim Riley. We all were in school together. It was kind of our graduating class. And so everybody would kind of move into Dallas and they would be part of like the, uh, the top 40 scene there. There was like a fusion scene. There were some big bands. We played on jingles. We did some teaching. And then a lot of every, uh, people were just going to the coasts. And I was like, ah, man, I got to save my money. I got to get out of here. I originally thought I would go to Los Angeles because I love the weather. I like a lot of the music that was coming out of there. And then I got an audition for Trish Yearwood, Dina Carter, and Barbara Mandrell one month one week apart from each other. Wow. So, and they were all fell on Mondays and Tuesdays. So I was playing in a circuit band in Dallas, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I would work on the material, fly to Nashville, do these auditions. All the guys in the band were like, man, you sound great. Da, da, da. You know, where do you live? And I was like, Dallas. And they're like, ooh, buddy, you got to get here. So I gave my band crickets. two weeks. You get crickets. Gave my band two <laughs> weeks notice. Wow. And I moved to Nashville with like almost no money saved, and but just the, that fire in my belly and the yeah. stars in my eyes and the confidence that somehow it would happen and I wasn't going to stop until it happened. Yeah, right. I think a lot of people give themselves like, hey, I'm going to give myself one year or I'm going to give myself five years. And if not, I'm going to get a corporate job with a 401k and I'm going to start cranking out babies. And it's just like I feel like the creative arts are you just have to do it no matter what and yeah. no matter how long it takes. Yeah, you know? and I think it's important too, I was listening to a, a audio book on, on the new music business, arriving in the new music business, and one of the first things he says is, if you want to succeed in music, do not have a fallback. Plan, yeah. Don't have a backup plan. Don't have a fallback because you're just going to fall back on it. You have to go forward as if, now he, he's meant to say not, don't like to have a backup plan in other words, what I'm saying is to have a backup plan, but have it be in music. So oh. you're going to make your living. Yeah. So whether it's teaching or writing charts for somebody or something, you're in the music business. But yes. if you're trying to succeed in the music business, stay in the music business, but yeah. don't have a fallback like going to a bank. And I or think everybody that is, you know, in the music business right now that is, say, not cranking out just number one terrestrial hits and having hundreds of thousands of dollars come into their mailbox every day, even those guys are multitasking. But a lot of us are like, we tour we record mm -hmm. on the row we record in los angeles we record from our home we create online materials we write for magazines we have other hustles that are within the music business yeah. because and i feel like they all cross pollinate and they all uh lead to other opportunities they do and, yeah. and as long as you're open-minded it's a it's a good thing to do there's know? a lot of stuff to do out there if you really kind of search it out you know when i first um started with lone star wait a minute i'm not going to tell you that because I'm going to be on your podcast yeah, in a but couple no, of days, no. and I'm not going to spoil it. Oh. No spoilers. No spoilers. Well, that one's all about you. That's all about you for sure. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll cover all the, the my stuff, my story, when I talk to you on your podcast, yeah, which is going to be awesome. Yeah, we'll be. Um, But, yeah, so um, what I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, so I was shooting a video a few years ago, and it was for a girl, and you guys were – you. I say you guys, your partner, you and, and your partner. And me, Kurt, and Right. We were at Ocean Way. Yeah, you're a production – sort of producers like uh, what would you call it yeah, we, production trio for about a yeah for about yeah. a decade we had a company called New Voice Entertainment <sighs> and we produced uh, three number one songs two number one songs for a band called Thompson Square and a number okay. one song for a band called Parmalee a, a hit of theirs called Carolina and they just had a num another number one. It took a couple of years, but very happy and proud of those guys. And so that was fun. But that, that actually grew out of a decade of working together, not only as Jason Aldean and Rush Lowe's rhythm section, but like, 
you know, we would do, we would do tons of showcases around Nashville. Oh, where right. Because you could pick up the material really and, easy and yeah, chart it or whatever. You put someone in front of us and we can make it sound like we've been a seasoned band for 20 years, yeah. which is a skill set. And it was a really fun thing to do. But yeah, I think we were at Ocean Way and you were shooting a video. Yeah, I was shooting a video for a girl and you guys were her band. You guys were playing and producing the tracks and you and I were talking and I yeah. think you were going to, you asked me to shoot some video for something, yeah. which never happened, but but that's that was one of the times I, I actually sat down next to you while you were playing. Yeah. It that took, was cool. I got some I great took, shots of you. took long enough. That's when I was playing sonar drums, man. That was like, oh, that's had right. to be about uh, 11 years ago. Yeah. Crazy. The, the cool thing about you in the studio, it, as opposed to some other drummers that I've seen, most drummers when they play in the studio, session cats, yeah, yeah. they're almost stone-faced. I mean, they're, they're looking at the chart, they're concentrating. You... When you're in there, I don't think you even look at the chart. You are, you're like, you're, you're Rich Redmond. I mean, you're, it's like you're on stage. <laughs> I'll take it. Now, man. I don't know if it's because I had the camera going or what, but I assume. No, I'm always like that. You, put, you can hear it in the tracks. I'm a like ham. Jason Aldean stuff. You I, can hear it. I try yeah. to be a ham. Yeah. No, but I think it's good. I think, I think, I think sweat, I think charisma, I think presence, I think personality, I think all those things come out of, on your, on your instrument. Yeah. And it's like, you have to be able to take directions. Maybe you don't lean into the cymbals quite as hard, or if the producer asks for a tubby or snare drum or, um, more space or can you play with plastics you yeah. have to be able to take all that stuff into consideration but um i always think that there's got to be a level of like energy and fun sure. in the studio and i know? think that the other guys in the room are gonna key off of what they're gonna see you either out of the corner of their eye or they're gonna be watching you that's gonna imagine if you if it wasn't you there and it was somebody else just yeah. kind of playing at it then how they would play versus you there doing your you know with your Thanks. arms flying and you know you're just you're rich redmond they're gonna play different i think I think so you know i mean any kind of groove and like things are like uh what i mean god uh train beats are not in style anymore but there was a period of time where we we'd have those piccolos and those things would be super hot yeah. and the gotta do i mean when you think about it it's just yeah. eight notes one and two and three and four so if you if you're stone-faced and you sound academic and you're like your butt's really like a drum tight machine, and you're yeah. not moving you're <laughs> staring at the numbers on the tr- it's not gonna feel good that thing has got to have a swagger almost like a like if you're at mardi gras yeah. or in new orleans or yeah. something it's got to have a swagger to it are you like me in that when you hear a track you almost want to hear a mistake or hitting a rim or something that's just like i love that quite... from back in the day i know wasn't that great like the I love uh it. I would say this the greatest example of that would be uh, Rod Stewart's group, The Faces and The Small Faces. And then also, Rod, I'm a big Rod fan, early Rod. He had a uh, record called Every Picture Tells a Story. Okay. And it's like, you could tell that all those guys like went to the pub and had three or four pints and some fish and chips, came back to record, and they kept mistakes. Things were pushing and, yeah, hitting yeah. rims instead right. of... But they kept it all. It would never fly nowadays. Yeah. I mean, and that's sad though because it, I think that's cool. I think that. Yeah. yeah I want to know that there's a human in there playing it, and they didn't just piece it together with yeah. some samples or something like that. You know? Maybe it'll come back. I think. I think you know if you have to kind of look for it. Certain artists are like, hey, we want to record live to take those bands that are like, hey, we're gonna have a party in a room like this. We're gonna invite forty of our best fans. We're gonna have an open bar, and we're gonna have the tape going, and then capture it. Like I think like bands like Audio Slave have done that kind of cool. a thing where it's like, that's awesome. There's no yeah. hiding anything. It's just somebody hit record and we'll just do what we do. Yeah. 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 I think those producers get involved and they have ideas of what they want to do. Not nothing against them, but they have a job to do, they have a label to satisfy and that kind of thing. Time crunches and, uh, and budgets you know, and Nashville cookie cutter kind <laughs> yeah. of like, you know, you gotta sound the same as the last right. Yeah, yeah. right. But um hopefully maybe in the 
coming days, they'll change that. Well, It'll those go Chris back Stapleton to... records are pretty raw and real. And I think so Dave Cobb is kind of like this torchbearer for like real music played by real musicians in real time. Yeah, Which right. is great. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so you you said that was for about a, the production thing with you and your what was it called again? Well, we had uh, well we were first started out we were the dream team me Kurt Tully so okay. Tully Kennedy and Kurt Allison and then we became the um, the three kings uh, we had one too many uh, adult beverages one night <laughs> and then we kind of marketed that and did did well played on a bunch of demos bunch of records tons of showcases we would be at Twelfth and Porter like on a Wednesday Thursday Friday Saturday and the only thing that would change would be the people coming in but all the label guys would come with their yeah. cigars and be like oh there's those guys again and then we just you know someone gave us an opportunity and we started producing things for free and then our reel kind of grew and then before you knew it uh, Benny Brown at BBR Records Jason's label um, started giving us projects like Parmalee and uh, Lindsay L and Christy Lee Cook and uh, Parmalee and so we got a lot of people a lot of record deals. now how did that work with three of you three pro- usually now for people that don't know usually in the room in the studio there's a producer maybe an assistant producer maybe but it usually falls on the shoulders of one guy mm-hmm. or girl that goes in there and they call the shots they hire the musicians they they pick the style it's going to be they talk to the artists they pitch songs they, they're in charge of the whole thing yeah. and you're talking about three people doing it yeah. like how would that work between well, the three of you well there was three of us and then we added a fourth partner a kid named david fanning who now manages parmalee um and uh he was just like such a great artist such a great singer such a great pro tools expert so he would be in the control room kind of like hanging with the artist and me, Kurt, and Tully would be on the tracking room floor. And a lot of times we would build the whole record up with just bass, guitar, and drums with the artist singing a scratch. And then we would we would add um, acoustic steel and all the and keys and all the other the From icing behind the board this time, right? From the three of you. Separate yeah. tracking session. Yeah. So we okay. that foundation, we could really, really experiment with the foundation and the feels and the tempos without the time constraint of like, well, we gotta pay for these other three musicians that are on the union card, you know. Yeah. It was more efficient for us to kind of toil in the trenches and we didn't have to worry about a card because we yeah. were getting paid as producers and then bring in the oh, other guys yeah. on the card I and see. then sometimes we would track all everybody all on the floor at the same time um it just would depend you know that's cool yeah, you know yeah. dan huff used to tell us he said well the one good thing about me producing is you get a free guitar player with that's it. totally because I mean, he would play i remember dan playing a couple of guitar solos on the rush low record because he and jeff balding were like best pals he and you know justin kneebank were best pals and so you know it's great when a great uh engineer is also a great producer yeah and they are also great musicians i mean those guys all play their axes they're all great engineers and they're all great producers it was amazing to me how watching dan huff when we were would we did about four records with him four or five records including the lonely grill and i'm already there records killer watching him produce from the guitar chair basically i mean that just seemed like impossible to me but then he did it, you know. It would be like we would run something down, and then he's playing guitar and all that, his normal thing, playing guitar. He has this little – he's sitting in a metal chair just like everybody else is with a little foot switch for his microphone and all his little guitar pedals, play a take of it, and he'll stop. And and he'll then he'll begin to tell everybody instructions from his guitar chair, like, hey, Keech, you were going to do a kick pattern on opposite on the verse and the choruses. You're kind of mixing them up. So go back to that other 
a kick pattern. Uh, Paul uh, Paul Franklin, you were going to uh, play on the verse. And, and it's like, how does he know all that? How does he remember all that stuff and play? That's amazing. And it, it, that's someone who's like hearing music in a different mm-hmm. way, who can split his brain into two different sides, you know. Right, and right. Uh, I remember the, the – the first time I got to work with Dan was 13 years into my national journey. And when he called, I was like, Dan, what took you so long? <laughs> it was like, he really laughed at it. But we got to do a record called, a, there's a band, there was a duo called Steel Magnolia. I remember that. And it was so fun. And he was so encouraging. And it was, we had time and a budget. So we would do one song every three hours. Yeah, right. Now in Aldine land, we do one song every 90 minutes. So, uh, you know, it was fun to, to have that amount of time. And There's, in Mutt Lang land, that was one, one a song day. a day. One a day, maybe. Well, it might take the whole day to write, yeah. to, write to choose your snare drum, right? Exactly, snare drum right. Tone yes, exactly. So what did you what did you get out of that situation? That had to be fun, man. What, uh, with Dan Huff? Didn't, didn't, didn't you work with um, Mutt on No, we didn't work with Mutt, no. Oh, huh? But he, uh, one of his songs, he cut... You know, that song, You Walked In, him and Brian Adams had cut that. That's really my, our only connection with Mutt Lang. I never, I never worked with him. Right, I right. wish I could have. Yeah, yeah. Been some. Well, you know, you've got a great track record of all these Nashville producers, man. It's awesome. Yeah. And, and the, the closest connection I have to Mutt Lang is that Dan Huff played on all that Shania stuff. And so Dan Huff was our producer. That's awesome. So it's kind of indirectly, you know, I felt the presence of Mutt Lang in the, in the room. Yeah, totally. But uh, yeah, I did hear stories. Paul Lyme was saying that he would line up. Snare drums. Uh, Here's eighty snare studio, drums. Eighty yeah. snare drums, and Paul would bring all his snare drums that he that he owned, which was maybe like fifteen at the time or something. Yeah. And then he would borrow some from Drum the, Paradise somewhere else, yeah. and another drummer in the music store and the his grandfather's attic or whatever. Totally. <laughs> you know, just you just never know. Up. You yeah. know, you could have like two or three different acrylites from the same era, and there's something some magical quality about one or yeah, one sure. head, head. Head's a little more worn out than the other or yeah, whatever. Yeah, the head's got this, whatever head combination that's on there. Or like, this has got the wide snares instead of the thin snares. Yeah. But you could also get crazy about that. I mean, like, people ask me, like, what are your most commonly used snares? And I'm like, make sure you have an acrylite, a superphonic, and a black beauty. And sure. you could you could, you could have an entire career with those three drums. Yeah. You know? Or possibly like a wooden snare, a, wooden snare's a great metal job. one, and maybe that. That acro, like you said, yeah. or the, you know what, I, I use that Vista Light in the studio a lot. Oh, that yeah. thing sounds amazing. I've got a jelly bean kit. Oh, yeah. Which, for those of you who don't know, Ludwig had a series of clear acrylic drums back in the 70s, and they would combine all the, they were different colors, like amber, one was red, and I think you might have seen Alex Van Halen playing on the clear ones. Yeah. But they made a thing called a jelly bean kit that was all the colors combined, it looked like yeah. a bowl of jelly beans. And it's, I think they also <laughs> call it like the, the salesman kit or whatever, because that's oh, the kit where yeah. you can go and you can show You'd all the finishes all the on colors, one yeah. kit. You're like, oh, I like the amber. Yeah. I have a one of 50 that I got from Gary Asher. Um, Dave Grohl sizes, like a 26-inch, um, the green yeah. Vista lights. 14, 16, Wow. The wow, 14-inch yeah. first time. Mounted Tom. Mounted <laughs> like, Dude. That's what, on my jelly bean kit, that's what that is. Yeah. It's a 14, it's an amber, yellow. What are you playing color. now on the road? What do you, what do you uh, It's, I play what I call um, Yamapex. Uh, it is. Oh, you were a Mapex for a Mapex, long time. half a Mapex, half Yamaha recording. So the way that story happened is I had a Mapex kit that they said one out of a hundred shells of this particular um, finish that they had, it was a clear kind of, like it was this teal color that you could see the, the the grain in you know it was like varnish or whatever they said one out of a hundred of those shells will oxidize and fog up and you won't it'll be like foggy looking that happened to one of my toms one of the high one of the my most like the 13 inch whatever and uh so not the 13 was the 12 or something like that so i 
put that kit aside and got a new one. And I always kept it. And then I thought, one of these days I'll have it custom painted. So I had a friend of mine, um, and I always wanted a 13-inch first Tom. Yeah. I always liked I do in my Yamaha studio kit, the yeah. studio kit I use, you know, the Yamaha recording, 13, 14, 16, and an 18. Nice. If I need, if I can get away with four Toms, usually they just ask me to do three. Yeah. So anyway, I wanted a 13-inch. So the Mapex didn't have a 13-inch Tom that I had that I when I was with them. So I got one off of eBay, just a Yamaha recording 13-inch Tom. And the, I like the floor. The floor Tom I had for that Mapex kit was a rack-mounted floor Tom. Oh, yeah. It was a little more shallow. I wanted the deep one, you know, which are the legs, yeah. you know. So I got one of those off eBay. So I had the guy custom paints like a steampunk look. I love Gears legs, and yeah. it's all airbrushed and stuff. It's oh, that's really great, cool. man. So only you and people like us that know drums would be able to look and see that they're different drums. Yeah, I'm a the hardware. Yeah, that's kind of like Texas C. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. You should mention that. That's funny. You should mention that. So Texas C used to be the name of our band before Lone Star, and nobody could pronounce it. And so the record label said, "You have got to change the name." Texas C. Texas C with it like a, a Z or a yeah. C. No, it's Texas C like Tennessee. You know, like uh, we don't get it. And uh, Dean said that, uh, Dean Sam said that one time somebody, they pulled up in the, this is before I joined, in the marquee, it said, Tex-ass. Oh, my God. Yeah. They, 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 they ran out of ease That's or actually something. a great name for a band, too. <laughs> Tex-ass. Tex-ass. Yeah. Tex-ass. Yeah, that is really and, good. And then the logo could be like, you know, those girls on the mud flaps on your 18-wheelers. Oh, yeah, right. On either the, side. The, yeah. That'd be great. The little silhouette of the woman. That's cool. Crazy. Um, so, <laughs> where were we? Um, so yeah, that's what I play. Uh, so anyway, the Vistalite snare from that kit, from oh, that yeah. Jellybean kit, I've used in the studio a couple times, and engineers like them. They yeah. sound great. It's got yeah. a tone to it that you just can't beat. Beautiful. I love it, man. Yeah, you just never know. So, so what's, put a microphone um, on it, you know? Now let me ask you, you've been doing your podcast for a while, right? For how long? Yeah, I'm, up, I'm coming start? up to about 150 episodes and was really aggressive about in the beginning and getting more aggressive. But, you know, you have to take little breaks here and there. But, you know, us in podcast land, we're about like 15 years too late. You know, Mark Marin beat us to the punch there. God bless him. Um, but uh, it's just a great thing. You know, there's so, so much new media. You know, yeah. like there's a million guys that start podcasts and they do about two episodes and they're like, this is a lot of work, you know. Yeah, for, and so then they quit, you know, like yeah. most like most things. But uh, my thing focuses, uh, the Rich Redmond Show focuses on music, motivation, and success. And I have, you know, comedians, actors, authors, songwriters, and a lot of drummers. Drummers are the low-hanging fruit because we are around each other all the time. We have this amazing community and we all love to talk about our craft. We and, speak each other's language yeah. a lot. We, we can talk shop. And I think even people that aren't drummers, they just love to be a fly on the wall. You know, if you're in, into music at all, you're like, wow, I didn't know that the drummers were that smart. I thought they just drooled all the time. <laughs> One of my best discovery moments on my podcast was when Kim Mitchell, you know, from, oh, from Might as Well Go For Soda from yeah. Canada, was talking about when they were on tour with Rush, when he was with Max Webster, and they were on tour with Rush. He said every night, Neil Peart, Neil Peart, Neil Peart, <laughs> would sit back there on his kit off stage back when they had this kit rolled off. He would sit back there and warm up to their set, to their show. So he knew every song and he could, he could play. And so he asked Kim Mitchell one night, he says, can I play your show? I mean, from backstage. And like his drummer was still doing his thing. But he said, can I, would, would it bother you if I played your show back behind you there? You know, and the, the audience won't hear it because everything's mic'd and whatever. And his kit wasn't mic'd at the time. It was just sitting back there. He played their whole show. He goes, I know every, every note of it. You know, I've been playing it for... Cause softly, I've been playing it for oh nights, God. and he said, and, and of course, Kim Mitchell, who's he to say no? He was like, That's incredible. Yeah, sure. And yeah. then recently, I think in like maybe the last five years, Greg Morrow played on one of their 
his late, the latest Kim Missile records. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that I heard crazy? about that. Yeah, Greg. Yeah. Didn't he produce them too or something? I don't know. I don't know, I man. But I, I love Gre- Greg's thing. He's like, man, I don't, you know, I don't overthink this. I set up the drums. I put some mics on. I run them through a couple of focus rights, and you know, it's it's in his it's in his hands. You know, yeah. I mean, as people freak out about the amount of gear they have and the the preamp quality and all that stuff, yeah. which is always helpful. It is. But you have to have a musical mind, and you have to be able to get a good tone. And if you're, you know, you're getting a a, a good signal, yeah, people are gonna love that because they're yeah. hiring you for your your playing and your your groove and yeah. you know what and what you don't play right and what you don't that's play. what we've learned a lot yeah it's some of my best licks i ever played i never played exactly <laughs> Dis- having the discipline I, it's so crazy we're talking about that because i just did an instagram post today about um i just did the my third clinic at the percussive art society last november it was so fun because you know, a year and a half of COVID and was like, I can't wait to be around people. And so went and did this thing. And I, I pulled a little, little reel from the, they sent me the video and I was like, yeah, I mean, discipline is the key in all things like not doing all these things you've worked on for years and years. Cause if it's not going to serve the song, it's only going to get in the way. Don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Now one of the, the interesting podcasts I had was Eric Darkin. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great percussionist. Oh, my God. Because my main question to him was, what do you decide to play on? Because you've got your whole box of toys. And he went, ah, you've, you've, you remember. And I said, like, yeah, you had a whole box of just percussion crap, you know, yes. toys, you know. And he, you know, how do you go in and decide, oh, I'm going to play tambourine on this and I'm going to do shaker on that. I'm gonna, And he just said, you know, it just be, you just listen to the song and you, what does the song need? And he's become a whole like expert on what does this song need yeah. and nothing more. You know? yeah, I love percussion. I have yeah. I have way too much percussion. I have trunks and trunks of percu- at I the know. house and on Cartage and in L.A. Because like, when you go into a music store it. or a drum store, how do you not buy what, like, oh, I the love coolest that little thing yeah. that's sitting up there? Oh, man, because that company, the companies that make the percussion stuff are working overtime. Time. You yeah. know they are. Yeah. Every time you go into the store, there's something new that you've yeah. never seen before, or never heard before, or it's never a cool little even color. Knew existed. Yeah, yeah. like and then the one shot shaker. Oh, that those thing. are great. Oh my god! When I first picked that up, I was like, "What?" Yeah, because you don't get the after yeah. effect. You get just a one get shot shaker. You you shaker normally you go forward, backward, forward. This thing one one shot. And then if you get two of them, you get yeah up and back. Yes, exactly. I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, I could relate to the darkened thing because a lot of times I just get hired to do percussion. So I got to, I've gotten to hear Greg and Paul and Eddie and Lonnie's, uh, Chad's tracks, yeah. you know, queued up and like, what does this thing need? Well, we're going to do shakers on the verse. We're going to do maracas on the, we're going to do like the uh, Mick Jagger maracas on the bridge. We're going to do beat four tambourine on the verses. We're going to shake it on the last chorus. And you get, you get to hear these other guys tracks and yeah. kind of men. Sometimes the only thing you really need is a shaker and a tambourine. It right. like, works so much. And then if you can venture into like congas lear- or something, you know, like if it needs it, yeah. Learning some congas, learning some cajon, learning some djembe, and having that in your in your back pocket. Yeah. When the producer says, "Hey, do you have something kind of quasi African, yeah. or we could <laughs> we could take that, or we could you could play the djembe with your hands, and then we could lo-fi it and make it sound like a twelve-bit kind of old." <laughs> you you, you want to be able to say yes, I've yeah. got it. You know. I think one of the coolest things that Eric Darkin did when we were doing a session is they asked him, can you create a little uh, intro loop kind of thing? So he had all this uh, digital things and uh, mixed with a couple of little uh, like analog things, and he made this kind of a loop. Like he had the stuff to do it right there. Ready to go. And he made like this little... And he goes, how's that? And they went, okay. And they just loop. They created the loop, yes. and then he played it through the whole you know intro and everything. And, and then he would take... 
uh, a big piccolo snare with some brushes and go cha 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 almost as if it were a shaker. Yeah. But he's like hitting it, it with it. Yeah, man. It's, 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 stuff. It's, if you have time to be creative like that, it's great. And then, but I remember like demo land. You know, like for probably about eight years, I did a lot of demos, and now demos are all just MIDI trigger finger guys putting together virtual instruments. But back in the day, um, we would we would you <laughs> get know, off my lawn. We would play you know real drums and program real loops. But the but you only have thirty so, uh, minutes per song in demo right. world, so you have to. Figure out how to be able to get a loop up quickly. So we went through periods where I had that um, that uh, rolled in little boss and inst- like okay, yeah, l- little right. it was like a drum machine, but you can it had flange flange and effects on it, so you can make it sound like lo-fi. And then I went through a period where I had the rolling hand Sonic, where you I've got one of those, yeah. Then they can put it on the grid, yeah, And however you got do it, and then guys were doing the machine thing or the Spectrosonics loops. They would have them all ready to go. Um, so I, I don't know what the crazy kids are doing now. We'll have to ask uh, Miles McPherson and Jerry Rowe what everybody's doing these yeah. days. You know, it's but- so amazing these young kids what they can do with drums now, that, and they sound amazing. They'll take put their wallet on the snare, and they'll put like uh, whatever, and it's just they sound so. Uh, small and poofy and yeah. and almost nothing, but man, they sound cool. You yeah, know, dead drums are back. Dead, yes, that's what I mean. I mean. It's like everybody's just putting their tea towels and their bandanas yeah. on their drums. They'll put a bunch of quarters on the snare or something with their rattle. wallet, and they go, ping, you know, and yeah. it just sounds cool. And I was like, I can't believe, you know, you see these things on uh, YouTube and yeah. uh, TikTok and things like that. You're like, how in a park, in the middle of this park, do you have that drum kit sounding like that? It's yeah. amazing. Golly. These kids go crazy. We could have never gun. got away with that. Pour, in the this day. Is, one guy pours paint all over his drums and he like plays to rock tracks and the paint goes everywhere. Wow, and it's like he cool. sets his cymbals on fire. I'm like, <laughs> good for you, kid. Yeah, man. That's, I love that's it. That's not for me. So, yeah. what's, um, so, okay, you've been doing your podcast for a while now. Is yeah, that, yeah. Are you, been going strong with it. Yeah, it's is going, it going good. Keep going? We've had yeah, we have School of Rock has been a sponsor. I've had Mortgage Companies oh, wow, sponsor. You know, if there's anybody listening out there that's like, you know, what's so cool about Nashville is that we've got like these, uh, you know, gourmet uh, breweries. We've got like mom and pop coffee shops and yeah. stuff. So you know that stuff is out there, and I'm you know I'm sure we'll land some more of that stuff. But it's really not the focus. It's really just kind of like it's a public service to get the information out to. You know, because we're sitting on such a wealth of information, great musicians here in Nashville, and it's also a cool opportunity for me to shed a light on my friends. But real, but and lastly, it's a way for me to like just think on my feet and conduct a quality interview and be a be a, a quality host. Yeah. You know, because in the last seven years I've lived here and Los Angeles. I got my SAG card as an actor. I, I wanted to talk about that, yeah, about I your mean, acting thing. I love the that acting. That was my next question. I love it all. <laughs> I love the hosting. I love I love, I love. love Hollywood. I love the entertainment industry. And, uh, you know, luckily I'm, I'm not scared of a microphone. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, have, I have that outgoing personality. And so you're just throwing yourself into the deep end of the pool when someone's, hey, do you want to emcee this charity event? Or, hey, can you handle a whole night of hosting at the Ryman for the school? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> You know, give me my put, my put my jacket on. Give me the microphone, and I prep for it. And you know, then I do a lot of motivational speaking. And so it all, I feel like wow. it all cross pollinates. You know, yeah. I mean, I love being behind the drums. But I also like educating, and then I also like um, almost being like if Jerry Lewis. And Animal from the Muppets was hanging out with Tony Robbins. That's what I like to do. <laughs> I'm for, trying to visualize for my that. speeches. So, so, so somebody's <laughs> going to come to my speech, a motivational slash inspirational speech. They're going to hear hit songs. They're going to be entertained because the drums are man's first instrument. Right. It really it t- taps into our DNA. They're going to get 
positive takeaways that they can use as a tool in their life or their personal and professional life. They're going to hear fun stories. There'll be some funny jokes. And of course, I deliver it in a way that is um, hopefully massively entertaining. You know, yeah. and I'm always working on it. I'm always recording the events and going, ooh, don't pause there. Or <laughs> maybe come out and play the drums first before you open your mouth. And then maybe come out and say hello to the audience and give them props before you play the drums. But I always feel like running out and playing the drums is the way to immediately capture sure, people's yeah. attention. And they go, oh, I'm going to listen to this guy because he's not wearing khakis. Yeah. He doesn't have a headset mic and he's not using um, PowerPoint. Right. And there's a mystique about you, you know, because you know? you're up there playing and like, well, I got to see what this guy has to say. Exactly. Because he, I just heard what he has to say with his hands. Now I want to hear what he has to say. Yeah. What's his story? Totally. That's cool. Yeah. So um, podcast, actor, what kind of characters do you do in your acting? I mean, what, what, well, my, what's your ideal character? That my, you like the things that are in my wheelhouse are, you know, I, 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 there's not everyone's going to be like a Philip Seymour Hoffman. There's a lot of actors that have bought very nice houses in Los Angeles that just do things that are like just direct reflections of their God-given personality. So yeah. for me, I would play like a lot of teachers, a lot of like douchey husbands, the funny guy next door. I play a but lot never of a drummer, huh? cops and, and detectives, you know. Well, and I think there's opportunities to play drummers. Like I just I just auditioned to be on Wanda Sykes' new show um, and play a drummer. And so, but they wanted like, like a rudimental drummer. So I just happened to have this beautiful high definition video of me playing this rudimental solo. I sent it in along with my headshot and my resume and they go, yeah, we like you kid, but da, da, da. We, went, we went in this direction and it's just nothing but rejection. Right. It's it's like the music business times a hundred. Right. Because in the music <laughs> business, you got to have maybe maybe you have a cool look and you're a nice guy and you can really play your instrument. You're a pleasure to be around. In acting, it's like no, he's too tall, he's too short, he's too round, he's too not this. Not there's a million yeah. things working against you, but somebody's gonna get the job. Yeah. So why not me? That's right. Um, Keep going and just do it. Yeah. It. yeah. And, and I thought I heard, I don't know if it was you that said it or you said it to somebody that you um, kind of almost wish you didn't have this pesky drum thing because you could concentrate more on your acting. Did you say that? <laughs> well, or did I hear somebody say? Hear I mean, I'm always going to, I'm always going <laughs> to play the drums and it's always my number one thing. And I think that's the reason that God put me on earth. But I do like to tell people like, hey, these drums are like, I want to be on TV without this pesky thing in front of me. Right, you know what yeah. I mean? Which was the impetus to be like, <laughs> yeah, I'll be, I'll play a detective in a horror film because the drums are, I have a gun. I don't have drumsticks, you know, <laughs> right, and that's yeah. just fun. Yeah. Um, but after seven years, I kind of realized that um, it's the, it's the cherry on my creative pie. Yeah. So right. for me, it's all about the drumming and the speaking, and then I go after acting jobs, and I, I meet producers, and I meet people that are writing scripts, and instead of having to do like 100 auditions a year, I meet those people that are like, hey, dude, you are so this husband in my next movie, and you only have to be available for like two days. Are you in? And I'm like, I'm in, you know, and yeah. it's just fun. And you, uh, would it come out? Would it work out, or would they? A lot of his, a, a lot of his scheduling. But when yeah. someone really wants you bad in the film, mm -hmm. it's like, it's like, do they really want the 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 anybody that's got dark skin and is five seven with salt and pepper hair, or do they want me? Yeah. Right. And hopefully, you just find the people that want you. It's yeah. the same thing with drumming. You know, it's the same thing with the with the music business. There's so many drummers that have a, a similar skill set. They can go in, they can read the numbers, they can play with the click, they can overdub percussion. Nice guys. But hopefully you can get to the point where people are like, I don't want a great drummer. I want Keach. I want Rich. <laughs> they want us specifically. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that, sometimes that takes 
20 years. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> you yeah. know, which it has. You yeah, know, totally. Yeah, you know. So what advice would you have for somebody starting out, say they're just out of high school, they're thinking about music, like they're thinking about being a drummer or a bass player or a guitar player, but oh, it's yeah. to say a drummer. Um, starting out out of high school, they're facing that big empty road, you know, of like, you know, is someone going to actually be able to do this for a living? Yeah. What's the best advice you would have for them? I mean, the answer is yes. Uh, you have to stick with it. You have to have the most tools in your back pocket possible. So for me, uh, when I was like uh, working on my reading and my styles and like playing all sorts of different kinds of music, because when you hear me play my version of country rock music, there is so many other things in the toolbox that kind of express themselves in a yeah. way. It's very subtle. Um, and the more uh, languages you speak in music, like if you can play rock and Latin and jazz and funk and hip hop and, and you could do some reading and you could create your own charts, it's going to make you more right. uh, employable. More hireable. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. You more create, sought after. create more opportunities for you yourself. Know, one thing that I have learned over the years that, that I always teach my students uh, is that I underestimated the quality of having a good kit. I thought, because I saw a drummer one time when I was uh, just out of high school and he had a kind of an older Ludwig kid. It was kind of, you know, rusty and, and he was a good drummer, man. He was playing in this kind of like reggae band or something. And I just kind of thought in my mind, oh yeah, he's a, a good, a great drummer on a kind of an older kit, whatever, you know, that's the thing. But I changed my mind in those days. Now yeah. I think it's when you go to an audition, they're going to be looking at your kit just as much as they are you yeah. as a player. Because they want to know what's, what's that going to look like on my stage? Oh, you sure. know, they're going to be nice, new, shiny, nice drums. and Or is it going to be kind of like a you know pawn shop kit or something well, like that? Well, you know what's so crazy is also like um, – Everybody has vintage fever now. They yeah, want right. drums. It's we're going through a period where people want like, oh my god, are those the sixty fours? Are those the seventy yeah. fours? You're kidding me. I hope those are insured. And and it, it's like it's like vintage is in. Yeah. It really is. But, but I think vintage with the with the newer symbol stands like hardware, sure. oh like my god, good yeah. hardware around a vintage kit. You something. and I got to have good yeah hardware because it's, we you know, hit that stuff falling over and stuff. We're like swatters, that. man. And man, those that hardware from the sixties, fifties, and sixties. No. It's like pencils, you know. Yeah. I could I couldn't even imagine. That, Sometimes but. we get that stuff in backline, you know, in the early days. We, yeah. And we just, I would gaff everything down. I'm gaffing the <laughs> spikes down from the, on the yeah. front of the bass drum so it doesn't, that's the most uh, distracting thing is yeah. a sliding bass drum. So over the years, I've learned to, number one thing to have in your back pocket is a big roll of gaff tape mm -hmm. and some lug locks and a little bit of bailing a, wire, maybe. A light for your stand <laughs> yeah. and extra washers and extra felts and some WD 40. And, you know, when we were back in the day, we were doing fly dates and, you know, these kids are like, what should I bring? I'm like, dude, just get a big Humesenberg floor tom case. Yeah. You put your snare drum in the bottom, a towel over it, your pedal, your sticks, your click, your charts. A yeah. stand light, your gaff, and some other little tools and parts. And no matter what some that moon back gels, line, a little bit gels, of moon gels. <laughs> whatever that backline kit is, you're going to be able to personalize yeah, it right. with your snare drum, with your bass drum pedal, right. your own sticks, and then gaff the heck out of anything that's moving. And you can use the gaff to change the sound of the drum. Yeah. To right. muffle the sound. You can of the muffle drum. it a little bit if yeah. you need to. Yeah. yeah I mean, gaff ain't cheap, but it's always great to have. And if you go to recording studios, they always have some. Yeah. Hey, you just take it. Yeah. <laughs> I just take it. Screw them. It's mine now. They know when we're coming. We're like, oh, God. That's Somehow kinda... it fell inside my bass drum. That's totally disappearing today, yeah. isn't it? Nobody will know. No, I don't do that anymore. Well, man, thank you so much for coming oh, by. That's so great, awesome. man. Yeah. I, I've never knew your complete story, and now I do. Well, I'm going to get your complete story on uh, 
Friday of this week. That's right. Yeah. We're doing a little Zoom fellow podcasters. Yeah. But I think what you're doing here is great, man. And and I think you're shedding a light on how special Nashville is and the community we have in Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. I think when people listen to my podcast, they definitely learn all the different routes that you can go when you're you know thinking about a career in music and this is easy for you right because you got into like audio and video uh editing yeah right no no video i started out doing some video but uh it's just so much work and i know you do video on yours but you do music videos too don't you oh yeah yeah Yeah, i've been doing music videos since like 2002 something like that that's awesome yeah cool man just a little here and a little there you know get these side hustles that's right man well thank you so much again and uh, we'll see you on your podcast in a couple of days and everybody else that's listening thanks for tuning in to the Designated Drummer Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. See you.